Hey everyone, welcome to No Presidium's Review Crew. This is episode number 34. I'll be your host today, Kevin Gossett, the LA Reviews Editor for No Presidium. And today we have... Hi, this is Laura Hess, the Arts Editor. Uh, this is Patrick McLean, the Chicago Curator. And this is Blake Wilde, the East Coast Curator at Large. And before we jump in, I'm going to let Blake uh, give you a book club reminder. Sure thing, and thank you. I am super, super excited to announce to you all the start, the first inaugural month of the No Persinium Book Club. We are going to be reading Snow Crash by Neil Stephenson. Uh, we're all going to have this read by March 15th. There is going to be a discussion in the No Persinium Discord that evening at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. And if you come in with good taste, well, they might be featured on the review crew following that discussion. And at that time, we're also going to announce our next book. We'll be taking turns month by month reading fiction and nonfiction. So keep your ears posted for our first nonfiction pick. Blake, do you think I should get started on reading a book that's over 500 pages that I have to read by the 15th? You know, I would advise it, but also it's kind of a quick, fun read, in my opinion. So I would advise it no matter what. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah duly noted. Letting it sit there is not helping anything. Have, Pat, Patrick, have you not read Snow Crash before? I've never read it. This oh, will be my first read. So, yeah. Patrick is very lucky, audience at home. He gets yeah. to read Snow Crash for the first time. And yeah, like Blake said, it's a, it's a fast read. I, I started my reread um, a couple of days ago and made it a decent chunk of the way in in a pretty pretty short amount of time, but uh, it's a fun one. So thanks for that. Um, we'll see you guys on March 15th. And we'll, we'll remind you uh, on the next few shows before that as well. So as we kick off today's show, we're going to do things a little bit different. We're going to look at some design decisions in a few recent shows and talk through the, how those choices may have detracted from an overall experience of the show, um, the way they were meant to function, and how even sometimes small choices can lead to like audience disengagement. Um, we realize this happens in a lot of things, but it's happened to, to a few of us uh, pretty recently. So we wanted to dive into that because we want to kind of look at maybe sometimes these these design decisions, they're intentional and they just don't work out. Sometimes it's something that was overlooked during the design or the play tasting process. And when it gets to kind of the real world, it it doesn't function maybe the way people people want. It causes people to disengage from the material. It causes kind of some issues or the show just doesn't work as a result of some of these choices. So. We wanted to, to look at that um, kind of from a high level. So we're going to use a couple recent examples. Um, this is obviously not comprehensive. And um, I'm going to throw it over to Patrick and Laura, who are going to talk about one of their recent experiences to kick us off. Yeah. Uh, last weekend, so this would have been uh, Sunday the 20th. Uh Maybe. Who knows? Uh, Laura and I went and checked out Reboot. This was a show that I had. This is actually a remount production that uh, I had missed the first time around. And this came up and I was like, I, I want to see this. I heard really great things. This was a really well-reviewed experience. Uh, Juliet has a, a full-length review up on the website. Maybe we can put that in the show notes for people to take a look at. And this is from Walking shadow theater company and it's self-described as an online play with puzzles um the company's based in minneapolis and they do have a history with uh plays and puzzles it seems that if you go to their about page they've got about maybe three plays that seem to feature the element of puzzles being in there but then they also do clearly new work and uh remounts of classical pieces and things like that 
the premise of Reboot is audience members uh, are well-known, revered hackers uh, in the world, and they've all recently been hired by Agent Halo, who works, I believe, for the U.S. government. I realize now I'm making that assumption um, to make sure that Agent Halo can break into a top secret facility that has recently come on the grid that seems to have Russian interests in Minneapolis. So then what we're there to do is to get our records clear by working with Agent Halo, but quickly, very quickly, it becomes a question of who is Agent Halo? What is really going on here? Can anyone be trusted? And there's this kind of larger conversation in regards to technology and identity that runs throughout the entire piece. Laura, do you feel like I missed anything? No, I think that's a great recap. I am just going to jump in to say this sounds incredibly ambitious. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess that might be kind of part of it in regards to our conversation. So as I mentioned, we reviewed it. Um, Juliet had a good time. I know that... um, Laura, like you came in not wanting to hang out with me more or less, but you were recommended by other people that you trust and uh, to go see the show, right? Uh, no, I'm going to push back on that. I was delighted <laughs> that we were in there together. I w- but you are correct in that um, it was recommended to me uh, by someone else who is a part of the No Proscenium community and a, um, a puzzle designer. And um, so I, at that point, had not read Juliet's review um, but I knew that there was a good kind of um, word of mouth vibe about this. And I thought, oh, great. Now I have a chance to sign up. And especially since you were doing it, Patrick, I thought, great, let's, you know, let's jump in and see what this is all about. Yeah. And so, Blake, to that point, you know, it, it while it read as ambitious uh, on paper, we very much were like, well, it's the ambition miss. It, it seemed to have been met. Like people had enjoyed it. It seemed to have been worked successfully enough. So Laura went, Laura and I went in to do this Sunday matinee. And right away, I think you would agree, Laura, that things were off. Um, whether it's the Sunday matinee problem of an audience coming in who just wants to be passive and entertained and things like that. But like there was a lot of people who were very slow to onboard into this experience. Um, and like for the fact that like Laura, your code name, cause we were encouraged to have code names to not be Patrick McLean and Laura Hess, but you were agent potato. Yes. Uh, which I thought was very funny, but you were probably the only person who had such a funny name. I elected to be agent November because uh, I just like the sound of it. But then very few people rose to having a name or even, frankly, following the instructions right off the bat. Right. So I think from a design perspective, I think there's a, a you know, there's several different things that we could um, we could really unpack. And because for today's purposes, for this recording, we're going to have more of an overview. We're going to just kind of talk about some of these topics. And then we are potentially looking at having, um, and I think Kevin might fill in more about this, that we're looking to have more of a salon conversation um, with creators to really open this up um, sometime in March. Because we realize like these are things that we need to support creators with. We need to have more of an open forum around 
maybe what's not working, how people can uh, get additional support or how feedback, very constructive feedback can be given um, in ways that really supports the community and supports creators because it doesn't benefit them if they feel like they don't have the support, they don't have the, the knowledge isn't accessible, um, they're not getting feedback in, in a, an efficient, timely way that they can implement it. So we wanted to really approach this from a place of support um, and not just criticism. But I do think that so I'll start by actually pushing back on Patrick just a little bit with the audience thing. I do think that there is a common, um, I think this is completely common, but I think that it's also erroneous. Um, there is a general vibe around kind of matinee audiences in traditional theater and beyond. And I think that while the, the time of day and sort of the general energy for that can certainly play a role, I think if something isn't working, the instinct might be to kind of, quote unquote, blame the audience. But I think we need to shift sort of away from that. Well, so I'll agree with you, because I, to that point with the onboarding, like people were encouraged, like, hey, feel free to change your name. But like it was more given as an instruction. So I think in regards to kind of the conversation at hand, like I, I agree with you that the onboarding to get us going was not as strong as it could be at least for me. And it was, sounds like for you, right? Right. And I think that one example that I wanted to cite, um, not to make like a direct comparison in, um, in an overly emphasized way, but I think that a really good example to compare Reboot to is Agent Venture, the Agent Venture series by the UK-based company, The Adventure is Real. So what you're looking at is you have this virtual escape room, you've got a group of participants solving puzzles together to arrive at the conclusion of the story, whatever it may be, whether it is kind of truly escaping from a situation, or in this case, there's more of a moral dilemma. And that is where you arrive at the end of this narrative arc. And um, in that case, to Patrick's point, Agent Venture, and Kevin actually did this with our group at the time. So Kevin, please jump in. Um, this was back in December of 2020 that um, a small group, there were five of us, um, no pro staffers, and we did this. So part of the onboarding process um, involved an optional quiz. And I, I cite this because part of that was to not only is that, you know, uh, amping up your anticipation, kind of bringing you into that world, we wound up being assigned very specific roles or we got to choose very specific roles that had specific expertise and unique capabilities. And this did a number of things really well. And I think this is something that Reboot could, could look at, especially since this is a remount and, and, and explore this as a way to deepen engagement, maximize participation, reduce fatigue around information dumps. So I think well, like, should we take a step back and maybe, yeah, I, I, I agree I with that. Like, let's talk about I... reboot, like in the sense of, I think our, you're and I experience. So I think I'll start off in the sense that, you know, we were on, we, you know, you meet agent halo through zoom. Uh, there's other audience members who are agreed to be hackers and, you know, there's the introduction and things like that. And then there's a, essentially a group puzzle that we're asked to do, which, um, Spoiler alert, uh, it is the first puzzle at least, but this one like clearly uh, required us to collaborate. Like all of us 
each had a separate piece of information that the other didn't. And only through collaboration and uh, discussion would that, could the solution be presented? And I think Laura, to like your point with here like that is that I found that to be a very difficult experience because very few of the audience members seemed prepared or ready to collaborate or engage in that matter. Would you agree? Right. So I actually think so. So what I'm talking about with agent venture really does tie into this. So you have an onboarding process before and then when you join. And I think a big part of the problem with this first puzzle that you're talking about is it's not just about people engaging around changing their names, which was a delightful thing that we, you know, could do and and it was optional and a moment to be creative, but you're launched into this first puzzle and no one sort of really has any kind of assigned or chosen role. And so you have a group of people. And in this case, Patrick and I knew each other. It seemed like the rest of the people, I think there were 12 participants. Um, they didn't seem to know each other. Can you other. explain why, why that might've been important to have like those kind of roles in this show? The, yeah, or that's what I'm getting what, to. Like, okay. So, when you don't have, so it's a larger group. So again, the agent venture example, it was half. I mean, we had five people. And in this case, you're looking at more than double. And so it does become difficult in order to know who is going to do what uh, in a way that is not just streamlined and efficient and reduces kind of dead air, but also in a way that people feel excited, they feel needed. Um, and we were just sort of thrown into this puzzle and you could see a lot of hesitation and, and a lot of just confusion. So it's part of the onboarding process and it's part of how people um, have that buy-in and feel really engaged. Yeah. And I would say in regards to this particular puzzle while we're on it is that along those lines, it there seemed to be an expectation that we would all instantaneously start communicating that a bunch of strangers who never met each other and are only seen and able to communicate through their computers can instantly enter into a rapport to gain that. And so I I agree with you that I, I wonder what could have been done to foster more camaraderie between the audience before getting into the thick of it. Because as we maybe venture a little deeper into this and get into other things is that I think that set a tone, at least for me, that I had a very hard time with the audience and the experience didn't help in ensuring that audience members who are different and don't know each other, uh, and who maybe are very hesitant to respond, um, what happens how, when that's the case? How many audience members can be in this in this show? Ten. And I guess maybe maybe that's like kind of one of the things to to think through here is I most people don't go to an escape room with strangers because it it's awkward. <laughs> like how do you take charge? Otherwise one person like no one's like dominate. Is that something that like maybe would have made more sense in this show to I feel so because structured groups rather than kind of free for all. Right. Because I, I did find it in, in booking reboot. I found it very interesting that you could only book individual tickets. Cause I feel like with the pandemic, we have seen the 
in-person escape room business models and all of the rooms and the bookings shift to private events. No longer, we, I'm sure we all may or le- more or less have horror stories where we've booked five tickets in an escape room and then five randos showed up with us because you could book 10 spaces in it. And it creates a really weird dynamic. See, I'm that weirdo who likes that weird dynamic and misses wow. that from the old pre-pandemic days. But I'm, I'm, well, I'm sorry to hear. I'm glad for you, but uh, I'm happier for it. And so it was very odd that when booking reboot, we couldn't just book a whole, uh, whole session to ourselves, unless I, unless you bought all ten tickets. There was just not a book this show for maybe like a flat rate or something. Um, so they definitely seem to be encouraging is the wrong word but it was definitely just like more approached i guess in that sense in a traditional theater show for anyone to just book a seat and you're going to sit next to whoever when it goes yeah and i think not to be overly prescriptive or to um to minimize design shifts but i also think that there's an argument to be made for um the show Again, I think it just had too much air in it. So I think that there's a version of the show that is tighter, shorter, and also then for smaller groups. And so you minimize, even if you have some strangers, you have a couple of people that know each other and a couple of other people know that know each other, groups of four to six, um, if six is sort of the goal and rather than 10. And I think you can minimize a lot of those issues. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Laura, because I've been think in thinking about that. I I wonder if the show, because the show ultimately was it's billed, I think, for 90 minutes to two hours or just shy of two hours. Mm-hmm. And now that we're talking about it, I wonder if it's that length because they've a design choice has been made, whether it's the ideal one or not, to allow room for the audience to do it. Because there were several moments because eventually you get into a larger kind of server room and agent halo is trying to hack a computer or find this object so on and so for a very kind of traditional avatar online escape room type activities but where i think we've all experienced online escape rooms where the avatar is really engaged agent halo's default positions seem to always be just let us talk to each other well and to I think not that's, give a hint right and i think interestingly enough that kind of passivity um i think in a way compounded on itself where yeah. then because there, you have a larger group of people most of whom seem to be strangers um and then there would be kind of this dead space because people don't have assigned roles or chosen roles and um, and so the, the sort of dead air that would result was a lot of times, I think, people kind of waiting for someone else to jump in. And then I felt like there were times that Agent Halo would jump in and it wasn't that people didn't know what to do. It's that they were sort of waiting maybe to see if someone else wanted to join in. So there were also moments I felt like that we got hints that we didn't necessarily need yet at that moment, uh-huh. but it because of the awkward um sort of energy flow. Um, I think, you know, that was difficult for Agent Halo for the performer to read. And so you have this very staccato rhythm to the, the sort of, you know, puzzle solving process, which is, it's, it's not ideal. Well, and then there was a puzzle that, um, 
that came up in the first third of the experience where basically we got to hack into these two computers and um, agent halo through uh, an, an AI assistant that is managing and helping us um, secretly, probably like the stage manager or something. Right. Um, sends us this Google doc link and it's uh, essentially an info dump. There's just like, um, let's say eight to 10 pages worth of information that you got to flip through to find um, a password for one of the computers and then the password for the other. And now in, in, in continuing this thinking in with the, I, I'm really tuning into this idea of the assigned roles because we're just given all this in documentation and where in, other escape room experiences where you know people where I can be like, oh, hey, I'm really good at info dumps. Let me do this one. When you're in a, 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 an audience with a bunch of random people, you, you don't want to step on toes. Maybe you like someone else wants to try to give it a try. You don't want to like do that because uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that would have helped in regards to like, oh, this person's going to do this and things and stuff like that. Right. To and that's again where, um, where the agent venture, um, because there's other, I've certainly done other online escape rooms that have these kinds of big document dumps or in, um, info dumps like the, the jury games productions. And in general, I think that they are done sort of well. Um, agent venture, for example, it was parsed out. So there was in select information given to um, each person based on their role. I do think that that's a better way. We also um, have talked about Blake and Patrick and I did Savage Hall, and information was individually given to participants via audio. So at the salon, we are going to explore how people, because what this looks at is accessibility information uh, or accessibility um, and inclusivity aspects of how do people process information? How do we not slow down the game by having yeah. these info or document dumps. It's a lot of different things around how to keep up the engagement and not slow it down. But I recognize the importance sometimes of these, you know, sharing documents, not before the game starts, but during. But I think threading that needle, it's worth a larger discussion. Yeah. And I think maybe to help put a cap on this is that I do agree. You know, we, we, you and I, Laura talked about it, uh, before immediately after, and we thought there were some interesting, uh, production choices made and things like that. But I wonder, my, the big thing I keep coming back to is I wonder how this experience was play tested and to what extent, because I, I feel like were the was the group that always play tested this and were those initial preview audiences were those people who were well versed with the company or what the expectations were or were other immersive audience members who had experiences through other things because i, I wonder i keep coming back to how much of this maybe could have been corrected or saved as really bad word choices if if it had been taken into account what happens when you get 10 random people together who, who none of them feel comfortable in speaking up? Yep, exactly. All right, so Patrick, I'm going to leave it with you. If you want to talk a little bit about our next segment and then I'll jump back in because I think um, I had more problems with this one than you did. 
yeah, for both of these, I, I think I was the person who's like, I, I enjoyed myself. I had some problems, but, uh, so with that, um, Kevin and I recently had done, and we have a capsule, a longer capsule review on the website for Crescent City Cases, which is from ultimately Escape My Room. Um, this is from a group of people down in New Orleans, uh, the Del Laporte uh, Ventures. I know I totally butchered that name, but they also do uh, and have a very well-reviewed escape room down there and uh and people really enjoyed this so we were invited to review their print at home escape room adventure which is the crescent city cases where it's six interlinking cases where you work for the family whose name i butchered and you know these are old cold cases that we've dug out of the records and you know what, by gosh, it's time to put this mystery to bed and it's up to you to put together and things like that. And ultimately the packaging for these experiences, I feel is an at home escape box where there is no box that you have the printer and you print off everything yourself. So instead of, uh, you know, placing an order and waiting three, three days to a week to get something in the mail, you can log in, you can hit download, and you have everything you want right there. And I think the the print at home concept is is particularly interesting because I think it does kind of open up to more people. Like you don't have to order things. You can, oh, I want to do an escape room. Like you log in, you get the code, and you can do it right away. Like it it makes for some ease of use and, and some speediness if you're like, I feel like doing puzzles on, on a Saturday afternoon or whatever. Um, that I think is, is an interesting concept. I'm not sure it... 100% works uh, with Crescent City cases. And I'll kind of get into why. So I did the first, like the intro puzzle and then the, or the intro case and then the third case. And Patrick, you did the intro case and the second case and you ended up doing the third case. Um, cause I was, per your request. Yeah. And also, I, yeah. And I think uh, we've, this was my first experience with a print, at, uh, print and play uh, game in any capacity. And I think it's the same for you, right? Yeah, it was, it was mine yeah. as well. So, I kind of want to hone on one specific puzzle in that in that third case where it it asks you to provide alibis for 27 different people who are involved in this mystery, which is a lot of people. Um, and so going through with that many people, I, you have to kind of clear them relatively quickly because it's like you're reading. There's 27 different documents, like unless you want to be there all day, you need to go quickly so you can make some deductions. You want to move fast. So I think. First of all, is that that is a tremendous amount of of people and kind of reading to to work through in in this puzzle. And and I printed it off, and you and they print some of them. It's like ultimately three pages because they the way you can print it off is that it's like almost like a half an index card for each suspect. And so on my kitchen table were just twenty seven little scraps of paper that had some important information i need to synthesize while and while visually kind of cool it was instantly overwhelming yeah and this 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 puzzle in particular is is overwhelming um so then it you got to make these kind of quick deductions to like move through it but then one of those one of those deductions that you might make it actually is incorrect or it seems like it's kind of like the puzzle is trying to be tricky about it and it leads you down this wrong path where you can't actually actually solve the puzzle 
uh, properly. And that was what I ran into. And I think you ran into that as well. Uh, I ran, I, I actually ran it. I, we ultimately ended up in the same place. I first encountered the issue because basically you're also given a suspect sheet where you can be like, here's the ones you eliminate because they both have, they have two forms of an alibi or some evidence to do it. Like, so if you have two things, you can instantly dismiss them. But if they only have one thing, they're pretty suspicious. And there was at the, at the time we reviewed it, there was only eight slots at the bottom for the, uh, the suspect, the suspect, the suspects, the main suspects, the ones that were really in question. But then ultimately Kevin, to your point, what happened was, is that we needed 10 names. So instantly I filled in eight slots. Cause I, cause I saw, oh, I need eight slots. So I was going off that information of the alibis and the evidence. And if I felt like I found two, I cleared it off because I need eight. I'm looking at a sheet that says that's what I need. Yeah. And I think that that was, that was the problem. Kind of it, it, it leads you in kind of astray in two different ways, like in how many people you're going to have. And then in this one kind of deduction you can make about whether someone was like present at the scene because people right. reference them and they, it seems like they were there. And then I think ultimately the solution does not involve them and they are a suspect, but it's kind of like, well, how was I supposed to, to make that? And why was that kind of built into this, into this puzzle in a way that was confusing and caused people a, it's a, it's a ton of information. I, I'm going to keep coming back to that. And it's, it, that is one of them, you kind of like, you put up a wall and it's like, okay, I, I'm going to work this quick. Like I want to get to the next puzzle. I want to kind of see what's going on. And then, and then to have the puzzle kind of break or function in a, in a tricky way that's not signposted or like that the, that the previous puzzles haven't relied on. It's kind of a swerve and it, it kind of took me out of the whole experience. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll finish this cause I need to finish it. But like, it wasn't from that point I was, I was kind of, at odds with the show. Yeah, it was, the it was subjective. It. Like in regards to that specific suspect that we both eliminated without communicating to each other, because there was a, st- it, when it's pointed out, you're like, Oh, I can see that. But when it's half an index card, like it's, it's even smaller, maybe a post-it note, if not smaller worth of information, it's like, Oh, I have two different people saying they saw this. That seems reasonable to me. I have no reason to suspect that it's maybe a, a little more subtle or a little more nuanced than that, especially since a majority of these puzzles very much were, in all three cases, were very black and white in what needed to happen. I have a quick question, or I don't know, this might not be a quick question, but like, because one of the conversations that Patrick and I had about Reboot and that we've, you know, kind of touched on in this conversation was around the marketing, was around the information that's given up front. And as I'm looking at the Escape My Room website, I mean, this just says 60 plus minutes. How much time did you two spend on this? And do you feel like you were not given enough information ahead of time in terms of the the total investment? Yes. I think the one I did, this one probably ran a little closer to two, an hour and a half to two hours, I would say. Okay. For me. Patrick, I'm not sure if you, you worked Yeah, they definitely or. ran longer for me. But then once again... I, I think the website also says, uh, uh, Laura, correct me if I'm wrong, that it's meant f- one person can do it, but like, you know, more than one person can do it. So like, once again, in regards to like, 
when you're in a room together, people can play to their strengths. And there was a couple things and stuff like that where, you know, there are certain puzzles that I'm terrible at scramble spelling puzzles. I, I can't, I'll never find the word in the word scramble. You Like, it's just never going to happen for me. Um, and so those things slow me down. And I think that's a, you know, that's a problem with the numbers in regards to that. And I think, because I, I worked out with my wife and I, I, when she got to this puzzle too, I was like, what? Like she was kind of having fun with some of the other puzzles. And then we got to this one, it's kind of like, what? Like, what is this? Like, why is this? so long and like we thought it was going to be a little bit faster and it kind of turned into a more involved experience so i think that was kind of to the show's detriment it was like because i was interested like i was i was keen to maybe try more of these puzzles but it was kind of like i don't these aren't my these aren't my jam i don't know well and, and then, then the intro kind of puzzle yes. too because i think this was the this was the one I, so i generally enjoyed so that I enjoyed the second one. I thought it was a very captivating story. The puzzles all worked. I thought the hint system could have been a little more robust, but the here nor there. The second one I really enjoyed. But this this intro puzzle, you're given basically five primary puzzles to start off, and if you go through them one, two, three, four, five at a time, as you solve them, you'll get answers that. Uh, to uh, spoil one of them, one of them, the word I found was pig pen. That was like the solution given to me. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what this means. I, I don't know what you're trying to tell me. And there was another one that ultimately, I'm sure maybe some of you at home are screaming into your, your phones that it was trying to tell me that it's a pig pen. I need a pig pen cipher to figure it out. But then there was no I had to go online to look up pig pen ciphers to then see how to decode the message. So I, I, I thought it was a very odd choice that this intro puzzle, every one of them scrambled to a term without giving clear, concise information. And I think that's, that's maybe goes back to your point about play testing. I, I reckon I've been kind of like some other ARGs and like ciphery things. So I was, I was familiar with the terms when they came up, but if, if they play tested it with people that were just already familiar with these things, it was like, oh yeah, of course, like it's this, but you're probably like, what the, what the hell? Like, what am I, what is this? What am I supposed to like be looking at? I think that goes back into kind of testing it with audiences that aren't maybe like fully bought into the concept or not kind of like deep into immersive or escape rooms to understand kind of what, how a normal audience might approach your show in a way that you don't intend. And I think it's like, you probably were like, ah, like took a step back and kind of like, well, this isn't very fun. I don't think that was, was the intention. Like they probably thought it was like a cool, clever puzzle, but it just didn't connect because it was, it required some outside information or things that you may right. not have brought to the table. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And it's, 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 it's an interesting choice in that sense. Like it, ultimately then it's like, who's that for? Is that for just really exper experienced puzzlers or, or, is there an expectation that everyone's supposed to know that knowledge? And it's an interesting question. And then I, that would seem at odd with this particular show where it is more accessible because you can print it at home. You don't have to like, you can, you can jump into this fairly quickly. And I, maybe that's not clearly marketed on the site or I didn't look into it enough that it was, this is maybe like a level up or something. I don't, I don't know. And it's, I think it's one of the things that you want to like be thinking about when you're kind of putting a show out there is like, 
who is it for and how how are you getting that information to people and, and how are they going to approach it if if they don't understand that a pig pen is a cipher I, or the few other ones there was an, another obscure one i think that i didn't even yeah there, I, I can't i can't remember it but uh, um yeah yeah and i think and then my other kind of other issue, and we'll, we'll, I'm going to skate by this, is a kind of big one, but it was a lot of the puzzles didn't tie into the story, like the overall story. Um, in the there two were puzzles that I for did. puzzle's sake, yeah. And I wish again, they have this kind of interesting framing device of the family and kind of building everything into that. And I wish that the two that I had done had been more a part of that and kind of contributed more to the, the overall experience rather than just like, here's a puzzle, here's a puzzle, here's a puzzle. Because I think some of them are fun and some of them, I think, play with the idea of like printing at home. There's one that's like a, a tumbler that you have to do something with that's, that's kind of interesting. But it, the show is kind of at odds with itself throughout. So um, I think it's just, again, kind of thinking about your audience and playtesting and how you've, you're bringing it to people. So now we're going to throw it over to Blake to talk about his experiences and things. Sure thing. <laughs> And sorry, you guys totally had the reins there. Sorry I couldn't add much more. I was just thrilled listening. No, so I am talking about sort of the evolution today of uh, Club Drosselmeyer 2021 to 2022. And for those of you who don't know, Club Drosselmeyer is an annual event combining swing dance uh, arrangements of the Nutcracker with uh, puzzling and a World War II era sort of steampunk spy plot involving Project Nutcracker, an automaton built to fight the Nazis. So already this is entirely up my alley. It's got puzzles, it's got old-timey music, it's got spy adventures. I grew up on World War II movies, so this is something that I should love. But really, the I want to, to point out... Um, kind of the evolution between 2020 and 2021-22 season, which uh, was the one I just did. The first time I did Club Drosselmeyer in 2020, and I'll admit I've never been to the live version because it's up in Boston and I haven't been able to get up there in the winter. What I've described is a three-ring circus already. There, you know, there's music, there's character interactions, there's puzzles, and trying to do everything at once is exhausting. Um, I feel like perhaps the live version, you had more choice whether you were going to just sit back and enjoy the music, have a cocktail, do some puzzles, interact with the characters. By putting everything online, there becomes a lot more pressure to do everything at once because your solutions to the puzzles are going to affect the radio broadcast. Uh, they actually set up a rather clever system where depending on how you've input the puzzles, that leads to what tracks you get on the radio. So you can't just sit back and relax. You have to be doing this at all times. Otherwise, the plates you're spinning start to crash down. And that's built into it that like, even if different audience members want to be doing different things, it kind of forces you into this where you feel like you need to do everything. So that's, that's an interesting point. Well, the in-person club Drosselmeyers will take all audience action into account to how the evening goes. So some people can play, some people can't because remote club Drosselmeyer is done semi-automated in groups of about six 
that means that your group is getting your results. And if you're not doing it, then you're going to be getting radio messages about how the Nazis are stealing data and it's your fault. So, Although to also, to jump in, I think to further expand on Kevin's question, um, and Blake, I think we were on the same team in the for the December 2020 version. Um, we were, and you, I think you, you remember... Do- yeah, go ahead. Catherine just falling apart, having to be our switchboard <laughs> operator. It was a lot, but I do think that, again, kind of similar to some of the aspects of the reboot and agent venture conversation, we did have different roles. And so we could all be working concurrently on different puzzles and different aspects of the overall experience, which you needed to do. It was way too much. It was way too complicated for just one or two people to do alone. Um, but it was also very, very high energy and very fast. Absolutely. And I think what you're kind of describing there is this overwhelming sense of content, um, which really does sort of segue into what they have done for the 2021-22 season. Um, They have sort of vastly pared down the level of content It's much more linear now. It has a similar structure. It's using that same tech that your personal puzzle solutions are affecting what happens on the radio, but it's very much a one puzzle at a time on Rails experience rather than trying to recreate that freeform feel of the last one. And so I I guess the, the difficulty there is, and this I guess I would extend to both to all the rest of you, is it really changes the target audience. And that, I think, is one of these issues that we keep rubbing up against in all of these. The 2020 experience, as you recall, was very much designed for diehard puzzle obsessives. And if you weren't going into this just expecting this to be a marathon, fairly difficult puzzle gauntlet, then you were going to be disappointed. This was not a sit back and enjoy your... uh, whiskey sour kind of show. But with simplified puzzles in a streamlined format, I kind of missed some of that chaos energy of 2020 as a puzzle nut myself. However, generally speaking, some of the more casual players in our party were much happier with it. And I think that speaks to this idea that there's a difficulty in trying to be all things to all people. Well, and and that is such a good point because the in-person version, which I have not been to yet, but uh, Kelly and Adams Pletcher, one of the creators, I mean, she has mentioned before how there are people that come to the live in-person club Drosselmeyer and they just dance or they just socialize and, you know, eat and drink and be merry. And then um, there are other people that are super into the puzzling aspect. And so with the live in-person version, you can have, you can target different audiences who have different objectives and different uh, goals. And with the online version, you're so much more limited in that way. Well, and I wonder maybe to put a cap on this conversation is trying to figure out to make it clear in advance when there's puzzles involved in your experience, 
who the target audience is. Does that mean maybe we need to be a little more upfront with the content and explaining what might be expected of you? What is what brain power you're going to be required to use, or maybe the level in which collaboration needs to occur? I, I, and I, you know, so I, it's like one of these things where I think we take for granted when you're in a room with people and the time is on, but when you're in this online space where. I mean, even on this podcast, we we go, oh, no, you go ahead. You speak. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Blah, 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 blah. You know, it makes it very hard to do that. So I wonder if there's maybe something for all of us to think about and for all you to think about there out there is what can we maybe be doing to help ease those or set those expectations up to allow an easier, more accessible experience to be had where there aren't, you know, road bumps and issues along the way. And I think that that is a good cap on it because I think this is this is something we we probably discuss a lot. It, it comes up fairly frequently. You can see it in some of our reviews and our and the rundown and, and different things. Is we're we're thinking through these ideas of like who is the show for? How did it work? And I think even there's like a, a kind of spectrum of like a show that has a lot of chaos and doesn't work. So I I think back to One Day Die, which ran in late 2020. Um, which was like a chaotic as hell show and it didn't always work, but it was also fun. So it's like kind of where is this line between like where it, the show kind of falls apart, but it's still fun or it like it works and it's not fun or it's like it completely breaks and, and no one's having a good time. It's one of those kind of, I think those, those thin lines that creators walk when they're, when they're making shows and developing them and playtesting them and thinking through the audience experience and the different levels of audience experience too. We're obviously on the more hardcore side. So we're kind of coming at these things from a different angle. When I go to things with my wife, it's like, she's coming at it from a completely different one too, where she's like, I like these things, but it's not like my life. I don't like, I don't live or die without these. Like it's, it's fine. Um, and it's, it's kind of how do you cater to the widest audience while also making sure everybody's having a good time in these shows. So to kind of wrap up, as, as Laura's mentioned, we are looking at having a larger kind of salon style discussion around audience expectations and how people are, are putting together shows and how we're defining things for both the audience and the creatives and, and how do you come to these shows. So stay tuned on the uh, No Pro Discord for more information on that. I think it's we're trying something we're trying to line up for March. So um, if you're interested, let us know on the Discord. Um, let us know on social media, kind of wherever you you may want to talk about this, um, because we will be diving into this a little bit more and probably on future review crews too is understanding like what makes a show work and doesn't and what audience is it for and and how did we approach it. So um, that's where we're at. Hopefully this was this is a little different for for us, but hopefully you found this this conversation interesting because. That's a conversation we're all interested in having too and kind of thinking about what makes a show tick. So um, to take us out. So as always, no percentage is a labor of love. Everyone on staff who you hear on these podcasts and read on the site are volunteers. You can support the work by donating to the no percentage Patreon, even $2 to $5 a month helps. And if you're enjoying review crew or the regular no percentage podcast, you can also support us by leaving a five star review on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever your podcasts. For the crew, this is Kevin Gossett signing off. Thanks.